welcome to today's episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast. We are continuing our series of irregular episodes during these irregular times. Amanda is here joining me. Hello. And we're, we're still curating some content for you today, but doing it in a different way than usual. I got thinking about how now, more than any time I've been aware of in my life, it is an excellent time to reflect on, I mean, really any uh, philosophical, psychological tools that we can find that work for us to help us get through this time. And the one that I came across five, seven years ago or so mm-hmm. that, that I think is just tailor-made for the situation we are in right now is uh, stoicism and more specifically the the tool of negative visualization that stoicism sort of uh, pioneered a couple thousand years ago it's had a resurgence recently and and you know so i came across it pretty recently and i turns out i wasn't the only one <laughs> it's it's sort of becoming uh, more and more popular just within the last decade if you believe some of the articles that are being written about it. And so, uh, first of all, I want to read some excerpts from the book that introduced me to the concept, but we also have some clips for you today and we're going to be discussing as we go. And what I will, I will preface this by saying that, uh, stoicism in general and negative visualization in particular are things that people tend to either immediately love or hate. When they first hear about it. Yeah, pretty visceral, visceral reactions. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's totally normal. So if you viscerally uh, hate what we have to say, um, I, I would just encourage you to like ruminate on it a little bit beyond uh, listening to today's show. And, and that is actually addressed by a stoic philosopher who we're going to hear in, in a clip later in the show. Um, but since we are living in a time of basically universal mortal peril, I'm hoping that people are going to find this advice more palatable now than they would otherwise. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is coming from the book, um, A Guide to the Good Life, The Ancient Art of Stoic Joy. And I'm, I've just excerpted a few bits that explain what negative visualization is and how it works and we'll talk about it as how it can be relevant to our current circumstances. So uh, getting into the first excerpt, they, talking about the Stoic philosophers, they recommend that we spend time imagining that we have lost the things we value. For instance, that our wife has left us, our car was stolen, or we lost our job. Doing this, the Stoics thought, will make us value our wife, our car, and our job more than we otherwise would. So that that's just like the bare-bones example of a negative visualization, where you are imagining things being worse than they currently are as sort of a psychological trick into getting yourself to appreciate what you already have more than you otherwise would have. Yeah. When you take things for granted is when you, you know, you, you obviously you lose your appreciation for it and, uh, and, and then desire more. Mm-hmm. You desire a better car, a younger wife, <laughs> you know, a better job, more money, whatever. And it's not that ambition isn't good sometimes, but, 
there, there's actually not a conflict in Stoicism between working to achieve or uh, working to do good, but also uh, finding balance with appreciating what we have and, and finding sort of what they call a mental tranquility. Yeah, to get off the hedonic treadmill and just look around for a bit. <laughs> exactly. The, the hedonic treadmill being the, the term that is, you know, you, you desire something, so you buy it, you feel good about it, you lose that good feeling relatively quickly, and then decide you desire something else, and the cycle starts all over again. That's the hedonic treadmill. So continuing, for example, when we kiss our child to remember that she is mortal and not something we own, that she has been given to us for the present, not inseparably, nor forever, uh, his Stoic philosopher's advice, in the very act of kissing the child, we should silently reflect on the possibility that she will die tomorrow. That, that was from Marcus Aurelius, uh, you know, ancient Roman Empire uh, 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 emperor. And like, that's... Right. That's the part where people go, oh my God. <laughs> right. We're, 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 we're jumping in at the deep end. People hate the idea of the suggestion that it might be mentally good for your well-being to contemplate the death of one's child it's it's unthinkable to a lot of people i completely understand that um so there's a there's a example in the book and i'm just going to paraphrase it rather than read it it's the two fathers example so uh, the way the story goes basically of two fathers one who practices this negative visualization technique and you know imagines not all the time, but intermittently, you know, occasionally contemplates the death of his child. That father will, in all likelihood, respond to those negative visualizations by uh, taking advantage of every opportunity with greater fervor to appreciate and spend time with his child to to you know, never ignore the child when you know maybe the, the father's reading the newspaper and the kid runs in you know you could imagine ignoring the kid because you're focused on something but perhaps the father who uh, practices negative visualization will take every single opportunity to soak up their child uh, you, you know whenever the opportunity uh, represents itself whereas the other doesn't do that and is a perfectly loving father and you know there's no particular problem with his parenting style but but maybe he doesn't take every opportunity to you know express his you know love and adoration of his child and so in these examples the the child does unfortunately uh, pass away now obviously both fathers are going to grieve their yeah, children. There, absolutely. There's absolutely no getting around that. There's no suggestion in Stoicism that you could avoid that or that, you know, having imagine, having negatively visualized the death of your child and when it actually happens, you're then like, well, you know. Yeah, I, no big deal. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely not. <laughs> that, that is not what anyone's talking about. But the, the, the parent who took the time to appreciate every single possible moment that their child was alive is likely to not have any feeling of regret. Mm -hmm. And they can sort of take solace in, in the fact that— Or at least that, a lot less of regret. I think I think it's hard to say maybe entirely no regret, but certainly 
Right. A significantly reduced amount. To, to to take solace in the fact that they, they feel like they did everything they could, that mm-hmm. they, they spent all the time they could, whereas the other father may have feelings of regret specifically right. about, oh, if only I had done more, if only I had mm-hmm. – I could have spent more time. I could have – Could have gone to that, you know, little league game. Could have – yeah. Exactly. Th- things of this nature. And, and so as, as uh, terrible as it is – to think about the death of a child, there is a very, very concrete purpose of it. Mm-hmm. And it is... Well, it, actually, I was going to say the word purpose is, is really important. It's, it reminds you to live purposely. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. Purposefully. It, ex- exactly. Exactly. <laughs> that that these, uh, as I said, are, or maybe I didn't say, that, that stoicism is, is often thought of as a, a set of psychological tools. Mm-hmm. They are sort of tips and tricks and tools that we can use to harness what we know and understand about human psychology and trick ourselves into leading better lives. Mm-hmm. Because whereas we, uh, you know, our, our psychological tendency may be to get on the hedonic treadmill, stoicism can help us trick ourselves into getting off of that or what may be our uh, standard way of thinking is to begin to take things for granted, our spouse, our children, whatever, to to take for granted, for instance, that your child will outlive you. Mm-hmm. Then you don't have to ever consider the possibility that they may not, right. in which case, if the unthinkable happens, you are devastated beyond repair in a way that stoicism could help sort of dampen the mm-hmm. the pain of that. So the point is that uh, whereas these tools may be painful in the moment, there are very uh, concrete and purposeful reasons to employ them to you know, avoid greater pain later on and to enhance greater love and appreciation in the moment, mm-hmm. to actually live a better life here and now, not just to avoid pain. Yeah, and to be happier because when you when you really look around and value your loved ones and even your things – um, you will feel better about the life that you have right now. And that doesn't, as we were saying before, it doesn't mean you can't achieve more or hope for more. It's not, that doesn't take any of that away. But you, you know, if you look around wherever you are right now, if you look around and you say like, yeah, this is pretty good. I, I could find, you know, many different reasons for why the car that frustrates me sometimes is actually really good. And gee, I'm lucky I have one and, you know, things like that. And then you'd start to appreciate it more. And then you walk out of your house in the morning, you look at the car that you didn't really think too much about a few days before. And you might be like, hey, that's all right. I'm really glad I have that. (laughs) I mean, so we're going from one extreme to the other, obviously, like death of a child and your car. But this really is just to show that it is a wide, um, wide ranging uh, philosophy and mindset. Yes, that, that it can, it absolutely can be used by anyone from a uh, a homeless person on the street begging for food up to a billionaire mm-hmm. can benefit from stoicism. Yeah. Uh, so continuing, besides contemplating the death of relatives, the Stoics think we should spend time contemplating the loss of friends to death, perhaps, or to a falling out. Thus, Epictetus, a philosopher, 
counsels that when we say goodbye to a friend, we should silently remind ourselves that this might be our final parting. If we do this, we will be less likely to take our friends for granted, and as a result, we will probably derive far more pleasure from friendships than we otherwise would. And if I could just jump in here for a second, I have found this time period where everybody is kind of in a holding pattern, (laughs) usually at home, um, hopefully at home. I have actually found this to be a rather interesting opportunity to connect with my friends again, people that I maybe hadn't talked to as often, or we kind of, you know, drifted a little bit due to many different things in life. Um, Guess what? Everyone's just sitting at home. (laughs) Most of them anyway, um, besides those who are essential workers, but take, take the opportunity to just shoot them a text even or an email and just say, Hey, we all got a lot of time on our hands these days. Want to want to chat? <laughs> and I've actually done this and reconnected with some people I'd been missing in my life for a while. And we were both so excited to do that. And I, I did think to myself, uh, maybe just kind of a subconscious stoic moment where I thought, you know, I'm really glad we did this because if the last time I had talked to them was you know, a year ago, and I don't really remember it. And it wasn't, you know, all that pivotal in my mind. Um, I would regret that should something terrible happen. I'm really glad we made an intentional move to have a conversation uh, and, and just connect again. Yeah. And so just just to refresh, as I said, at the beginning, people tend to love this philosophy right out of the box, or uh, or are appalled by some of the suggestions <laughs> that, that come from it. But the reason I'm talking about it is because we should be very upfront and honest and frank about the fact that thousands and thousands of people are dying right now. Yeah. There is every reason to believe that the, the majority of the population of the world may know someone soon yeah, who does are, not survive this pandemic? We are heading in that direction, unfortunately. And we're we're sort of at a moment in time when that is theoretical becoming reality. Mm-hmm. And and so I wanted to talk about this in a really frank way because the story you just told is is very indicative of the positive side mm-hmm. of this mm-hmm. that whether consciously stoic of you or not um you know taking time to to reconnect with people is is great and the really unfortunate and sad reality is that some people are going to take an opportunity to reconnect and it's going to be the last time they ever talk to that person Mm. it just is and and like we're at a moment when it doesn't make sense to not talk about that frankly Mm -hmm. so um yeah and, and maybe and just maybe to take that one step further you know, obviously there are divisions within families. Sometimes people stop speaking and sometimes that's for the best. Sometimes that's for your own self-care. Um, but other times it's just something stupid that happened a couple of years ago and everyone just didn't handle it well. Well, as I said, we all got a little time on our hands. Um, it might not be bad to reach out and try to smooth these things over in a time where we are all facing this incredibly daunting um, possibility of of mass mass infection and death so yeah there there's more you can do with your time than learn a new craft (laughs) it might be really beneficial to your life and someone else's 
Okay, so to lighten things up a little bit, let's take a step back. Um, <laughs> as I was, I was refreshing myself. You know, I, I pulled all these excerpts from this book, but um, something that I, I didn't excerpt to read to you, but I, I was reminded of this uh, aspect of Stoicism is that there, there's always the accusation. You know, when, when people aren't familiar with the philosophy and and the tenets of it, there's a lot of assumptions or accusations that come of like, uh, well, first of all, the the philosophy of uh, stoicism is the origin of the word stoic, stoical. Right. And people have a lot of preconceived so, notions and, about what that means. And so the dictionary definition uh, of uh, stoic or being stoical is not really in line. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's just a perversion of the origin. Like you can see the connection, but they are not the same. Yeah. But people tend to think like, you know, emotionless. Yeah. They, they are neither, you know, happy nor sad nor anything else, just sort of cold. That is not what the philosophy of Stoicism advocates for or aims for in any way. Um, and there's an example that I came across that, that really puts this to bed. It's, it's the classic, uh, you know, how would a Stoic respond to the, the question of whether a glass is half full or half empty? And there's all kinds of variations on this. I, I learned one recently that I hadn't heard before that, you know, how does a, um, uh, how, how does an engineer answer the question of whether a glass is half full or half empty. Do you know this one? How does an engineer answer that question? <laughs> <laughs> they, they question why the glass is twice as big as it needs to be. Right. <laughs> I forgot about that one. A stoic answers the question of whether a glass is half full or half empty by appreciating not only the fact that it's half full, but recognizing that a glass is an amazing <laughs> object. <laughs> It's, you know, it can be beautiful, it can be durable when something is put into it. It doesn't impart any taste on the fluid you added. It's transparent. It, you can see what's inside. It, it, it's it's a it's a miracle of engineering, mm-hmm. a glass is. Mm-hmm. And so you should appreciate a glass for being a glass no matter what's in it. Mm-hmm. That's how a stoic would see it. So it, it's, it's actually an incredibly positive and optimistic <laughs> philosophy that's always looking for right. the beauty and the happiness and the joy in the world right, right. In, in every aspect, whereas, you know, others tends to overlook it because they take it for granted or become accustomed. Yeah. And they, they talk also about how, like, this is why kids are so happy. Everything's new. Everything's amazing. Everything's amazing. <laughs> and, and they don't know that everything sticks around. Mm-hmm. A, a kid may find something that's really cool and think like, I don't know, this could be gone tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I better appreciate the hell out of it right now. <laughs> so that's the story that that I like to tell that, that uh, you know, imparts a much better, uh, you know, a, a rosier image of, of what a stoic is. But of course, there are plenty who uh, don't like that or look down on it or think it's silly or foolish to... Uh, to try to find joy everywhere or to try to be optimistic because maybe the world doesn't deserve to be looked at with optimism. So, but uh, I, I think what's key just really quick about, about the, what seems like a contradiction is that. So yes, that stoic is appreciating everything about the glass and, and what it does and everything, but it also knows that it can break at any time. That's the connection that it knows that the glass can is break is, um, yeah, it's breakable. Um, it needs to be handled with care. It needs to be appreciated now because it may not be there tomorrow. I think that's the link. So it, while they may seem super rosy and positive in some ways, 
they it's because they understand the impermanence. Exactly. And, and yeah, we're, we're going to get to impermanence for sure. And, and it's, it's having an appreciation for and simultaneously a distance from everything because of its impermanence to not feel latched to things, either, you know, mm-hmm. either things, you know, physical objects like a glass or even people we know that that's what the negative visualization is about for people is to recognize that literally everything in the world, in the universe is on loan. Mm-hmm. It is ours to experience while it is here and it will all disappear at some time in its own time. And to recognize that ahead of time helps us appreciate it while it's here and recognize that it was, it was bound to disappear at some point. I'm glad I appreciated it while it was here and I am more ready for it to leave when mm-hmm. it eventually leaves. But to get back to the, the people who are jaded about finding joy, <laughs> those, uh, jerks. <laughs> those, those jerks, um, back to the book, sometimes a catastrophe blasts these people out of their jadedness. Suppose, for example, a tornado destroys their home. Such events are tragic, of course, but at the same time, they potentially have a silver lining. Those who survive them might come to appreciate whatever they still possess. More generally, war, disease, and natural disasters are tragic in as much as they take from us the things we value, but they also have the power to transform those who experience them. Before these individuals might have been sleepwalking through life, now they are joyously, thankfully alive, as alive as as they have felt in decades. Before, they might have been indifferent to the world around them. Now they are alert to the world's beauty. So, this book is written a long time, you know, I don't know, a decade ago or so. Um, obviously, we're living through a catastrophe right now, right. and we're not on the other side of it yet. So those of us who survived this catastrophe we're in the middle of are sure to have a newfound appreciation for life and for the ability to leave our homes without yeah. fear of death or illness. Um, to hug another person. Hug I a- mean, there's like really simple stuff here that we are starting to realize how important and critical it is. Exactly. So, so for those of us who survive, we can expect that to happen on the other side of this, but we're not there yet. But with negative visualization, we can get a jump start on experiencing that feeling. This book is making the comparison between surviving a catastrophe on one hand and that being one way to gain an appreciation for life and negative visualization being a much safer, (laughs) frankly, (laughs) way to get a very similar experience. Um, Besides, uh, negative visualization brings a satisfaction to life that is more durable than the appreciation that comes after a catastrophe. So back back Mm -hmm. to the book. A drawback to catastrophe-induced transformations is that the states of joy they trigger tend to wear off. Those who come close to dying but subsequently revive typically regain their zest for living. They might, for example, feel motivated to contemplate the sunsets they had previously ignored or to engage in heartfelt conversations with the spouse they had previously taken for granted. They do this for a time, but then, in all too many cases, apathy returns. They might ignore the gorgeous sunset that is blazing outside their window in order to complain bitterly to their spouse that there's nothing worth watching on television. 
negative visualization does not have these drawbacks. We don't have to wait to engage in negative visualization the way we have to wait to be struck by a catastrophe. Being struck by a catastrophe can easily kill us. Engaging in negative visualization can't. And because negative visualization can be done repeatedly, its beneficial effects, unlike those of a catastrophe, can last indefinitely. So just to be super clear, it's if anyone was complaining about what's on TV, I mean, come on, we're living in the in the age of streaming. <laughs> so so reset those expectations. <laughs> exactly. There's always something to watch. And then to just jump quickly into the next one, which and this one is particularly relevant to today's uh, reality, as you'll hear, we can practice negative visualization by paying attention to the bad things that happen to other people and reflecting on the fact that these things might instead have happened to us. Alternatively, we can do some historical research to see how our ancestors lived. We will quickly discover that we are living in what to them would have been a dream world that we tend to take for granted things that our ancestors had to live without, including antibiotics, air conditioning, toilet paper, he mentions, Mm, (laughs) cell phones, television, windows, eyeglasses, and fresh fruit in January. So... Clearly, this author never expected anyone to be in the modern world to be scrambling for to- for toilet paper. That's a very unique experience for our time. Indeed, indeed. And so, um, I mean, I so the, the the first sentence in there talks about uh, negatively visualizing by paying attention to the bad things that happen to other people and sort of being grateful that it's not happening to you. Mm-hmm. And in in our current context. I, I feel like that sounds a little perverse, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Are you with me on that? So, um, you know, as, as with anything, it's important to adjust <laughs> and, and to negatively visualize only in ways that genuinely make sense. I mean, part of the anxiety and stress and fear and sorrow that we're feeling is exactly by visualizing what's happening exactly. to other people. And and so in this particular case, I wouldn't really recommend that one. Yeah. And I was even saying to Jay, you know, it's really hard to neg- negatively visualize when I wake up and see like horrific headlines that I never thought I'd see in my lifetime. Um, but yeah, I mean. So part, part of the Stoic philosophy, as I said, it can be useful to the beggar on the street up to the billionaire in the mansion. It really is. I mean, it's, it's, you know, things can always be worse. <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, it's. Sort and I know that's annoying. I feel like I feel like if you if we weren't living in a pandemic <laughs> and people were like, stop complaining, things can always be worse. That's that's genuinely good advice, though people don't like to hear it, right? It, it is. But it, in like, this case, with what we're facing, that is something we really do have to consider deeply. Yeah. It. it on one hand, it, it is annoying. I was going to say it's sort of trite, but. Um, that's why I think the second piece of what I just read about, you know, imagining if we were going through this, but we were living in the time of our ancestors, Mm -hmm. things would be so much worse. Yeah. I mean, I'm grateful every single day just for the fact that science is as advanced as it is. You know, when you think about what happened with the Spanish flu, like they were not even close to being able to whip out a vaccine, treatments, et cetera. And now, you know, we got the whole world of scientists working on this at once. And um, and it will be a much shorter timeline. Yeah. And, and I, I feel like this is one of those things where a critic 
would would try to jump on us right now and say, no, no, here's the contradiction. You're trying to appreciate how things are, but if, if you just are appreciative of the way science is, then you won't be more demanding of it. And you'll think like, well, I mean, we have no. all these, <laughs> you know, we have all these shortages of masks and ventilators, but it could be worse. So stop complaining. No, 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 no. Again, no. that is not at all what stoicism would have to say about it or what we would have to say as people who care about justice and reducing suffering there is no way on earth that we aren't demanding more of everyone and specifically our government (laughs) that's that is not the same thing yeah that that's an apparent contradiction that does not actually hold up and is not actually a contradiction so i also want to touch briefly on just the potential for starting some sort of downward spiral, because there are people who just have constant negative thoughts and who have to work really, really hard to, um, to not <laughs> see the world in this negative way all the time. And, that, and that's a different thing. Negative visualization, having negative thoughts, those are, those are separate. Um, and so I remember that we were talking about this with some friends of mine who had just recently had kids, so like new moms. And uh, as you might expect, they were horrified by <laughs> some of the things that we were saying you might visualize. Um, and we were trying to be really gentle about it as two people who don't have kids. We don't want to be those jerks. And <laughs> but what my friends said were they were like, but I, like, of course I have those thoughts and I try as hard as I possibly can not to think about it because like, that's the worst thing ever. But yes, like I'm trying to keep this kid alive every single day. And it's like, you know, anxiety inducing and I worry all the time. And so we started talking about the difference between worry and negative visualization because they seem to feel very strongly that those things are linked. And, um, and what we were trying to, to impart was worry is that like constant, like, anxiety that doesn't go away that you're just like you know at the on the edge of your seat all the time because the kid might swallow something and the kid might fall or whatever that's worry right you're worried about what might happen negative visualization is very conscious the worry is very you know uh not conscious (laughs) and so to purposely sit and say, I am going to take a moment to think about this what if situation is not the same as worry. So I just wanted to make that clarification. No, that, that was a very well timed point that uh, flows right into the next clip from the book, uh, that addresses the question. Okay. So you've been hearing us talk about negative visualization. So what am I supposed to do? Just like constantly think about everything that can go wrong right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, live in a state of, half misery because instead of enjoying what's actually happening, I'm contemplating that it could be worse. No, not at all. So back to the book. Let me point out that it is a mistake to think Stoics will spend all their time contemplating potential catastrophes. It is instead something they will do periodically, a few times each day or a few times each week. A Stoic will pause in his enjoyment of life to think about how all of this All of these things he enjoys could be taken from him. Furthermore, there is a difference between contemplating something bad happening and worrying about it. Contemplation is an intellectual exercise, and it is possible for us to conduct such exercises without it affecting our emotions. It is possible, for example, for a meteorologist to spend her days contemplating tornadoes without subsequently living in dread of being killed by one. In similar fashion, it is possible for a Stoic to contemplate bad things that can happen without becoming anxiety-ridden as a result. 
And this, is, again, is addressed in a clip we're going to hear in a few minutes, that if you attempt negative visualization and it spirals mm-hmm. into anxiety, then stop. Right. That is not how it's supposed to work. That's not how it's supposed to feel. And if if one seamlessly flows to the other and you can't prevent it, then that is not an exercise that you should do, at least at this moment in time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and the, the emphasis should be on imagining that things are a certain way and then and then the next step is acknowledging they are not this way right now thankfully they are not this way right now if you don't have that second part then yes you could very easily spiral the um you know people all the time you know think about what ifs and and whatever and they just kind of let that hang <laughs> what if well yeah what if like unless you have an action plan or something that comes next you are living in the anxiety inducing spiral but if you think about the negative thing stop and say i am so grateful that that is not the case right now look at your reality look at what is happening um the you know i think about every day the fact that like yes we're still trying to get people to stay home but it is amazing to me that as many people in the world are like that are staying home are staying home that that just kind of blows my mind um in our in our society it just seemed like such a daunting task to make everyone do that and and a lot of people are so i'm grateful for that because if they weren't so i can imagine that future or that that possibility of people not adhering to this or, you know, even more people not adhering to this and things would be worse. And so then I reel it back in and I say, I'm so grateful that people are, for the most part, adhering to the stay at home guidelines. And and so I I think you framed that really, really well, the the two-step process Mm -hmm. of negative visualization, because there always has to be the the positive recognition of reality as compared to your negative visualization, which is literally the whole point. And um, I I was likening this before we started recording to, uh, you know, they, they, they talk about negative visualization as being a practice Mm -hmm. or an exercise. Mm -hmm. And that is a perfect word for it because it's very much like exercising. It's, it it functions in a very similar way to physically exerting yourself. Doing a mental visualization can be a mental exertion that causes you pain. Mm -hmm. Just like lifting a bunch of heavy weights or going for a long run, you can feel physical pain from that. But the reason that people do it is because they see and feel the positive benefits that come on the other side of that. Mm -hmm. Runners get runners high and, (laughs) you know, weightlifters can lift ever heavier weights and the pain they feel from their workout is coupled with positive benefits and the good feelings that come from it. And that's what negative visualization is about. It might be painful in the moment, but first of all, it gets easier, Mm -hmm. just like with exercise. Mm -hmm. It gets easier over time to do it because you train yourself to recognize this isn't – I'm not inflicting pain on myself. I am creating a scenario in which I can feel goodness mm-hmm. and positive feelings about the world and my life and my situation. And and so the, the negative visualization is just the momentary. Literally, it can just be a few seconds. Mm-hmm. It, like this can be a less than one-minute mental – exercise that can then make you feel good for 
hours and hours yeah. or days. Yeah. And I, I would just point out real quick too that if you are the kind of person that practices meditation, you might be even better at this because part of meditation practice is to be able to recognize our thoughts but not let them pull us out of control just to let a thought come and let a thought go. And, and so if you're practicing that, then yeah, you, you may be better at this faster <laughs> than, than other people. But yeah. Um, and, and so as I promised, uh, I said, we we're going to get to impermanence and that, that's the last bit of this book that I want to read to you guys. Uh, and it's all about being able to appreciate what we have while still not becoming attached to it. Um, there will be, or already has been, a last time in your life that you brush your teeth, cut your hair, drive a car, mow the lawn, or play hopscotch. There will be a last time you hear the sound of snow falling, watch the moon rise, smell popcorn, feel the warmth of a child falling asleep in your arms, or make love. You will someday eat your last meal, and soon thereafter, you will take your last breath. Sometimes the world gives us advance notice that we are about to do something for the last time. We might, for example, eat at our favorite restaurant the night before it's scheduled to close. Or we might kiss a lover who is forced by circumstances to move to a distant part of the globe, presumably forever. Previously, when we thought we could repeat them at will, a meal at this restaurant or a kiss shared with our lover might have been unremarkable. But now that we know they cannot be repeated, they will likely become extraordinary events. The meal will be the best we ever had at the restaurant, and the parting kiss will be one of the most intensely bittersweet experiences life has to offer. By contemplating the impermanence of everything in the world, we are forced to recognize that every time we do something could be the last time we do it, and this recognition can invest the things we do with a significance and intensity that would otherwise be absent. We will no longer sleepwalk through our life. Some people, I realize, will find it depressing or even morbid to contemplate impermanence. I am nevertheless convinced that the only way we can be truly alive is if we make it our business periodically to entertain such thoughts. Mm-hmm. And we're not here to lecture, but we're here to say from personal experience that these, these, uh, these tools have helped us over the last five years, and I think that they're going to help us through this time as well. And so now we'll, we'll transition. I have a couple of clips for you from uh, actual Stoic philosophers who are much more informed on the topic than we are talking about Stoicism in the context of the coronavirus pandemic. Another Stoic technique which I've found really helpful, similar to an extent to diaries, is this thing they did called negative visualization, which sounds a bit horrific, but it is actually really useful. And that's periodically imagining like a worst case scenario. So it might be imagining that members of your family or you yourself get coronavirus. It might be imagining that you have trouble accessing food. It might be that you isolated for maybe a year from your immediate family. So we're told to always think on the bright side, but Stoics had this technique to imagine the worst. And there's a couple of reasons for this. One is 
if it does happen, you've mentally prepared yourself. And secondly, if it doesn't happen, you appreciate the circumstances that are free from those terrible things. So it allows you to live more fully and enjoy the moment more because those bad things haven't come to pass. And initially, when I started reading the Stoics, I was really horrified by negative visualization. I thought it would give me a lot of anxiety. Epictetus has this line, which is, when you kiss your child goodnight, imagine that that will be the last time you see her because she might die in the night. And that's really harsh. And I, I recoiled from that. But it does make you appreciate the things that you have because they're in danger of being returned, which is, you know, the kind of this beautiful stoic word for the fact that whatever we have can be taken away from us or returned back to the place from whence it came. So negative visualization has been useful for me in this time. Forgive me for the personal question, but may I ask you what kinds of things you uh, negatively visualize about? I negatively visualize about members of my family dying. I negatively visualize about losing my job. I negatively visualize my parents dying. Um, They're in their 70s. So, you know, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, if they get the virus, how they'll be less able than someone younger um, to fight it off. I negatively visualize the hospitals being over full and not being able to get treatment. So it's, it's really scary, but they're all possibilities. But at what point do you reap the, the positive reward of negative visualization? My parents are well. My friends are alive. I can buy food. I still have a job. So I imagine the terrible things that could happen. And then immediately I go back to reality and I say, none of those things have happened. They could happen, but they haven't happened. And so I'm going to ring up my parents who are currently in isolation and have a, a really enjoyable phone conversation with them because I still can. It is, I think it is a fine line between practicing ne- negative visualization and freaking yourself out. <laughs> it would be indeed. It's not like we should do these kind of things, uh, uh, both the negative visualization, the, the journaling and a number of other things, just because, you know, well, Epictetus says so. Well, he said it 2,000 years ago. Maybe he was mistaken. But the fact is that a lot of these techniques, especially the ones that we've been talking about, are actually evidence-based, as we say today. They are backed up by, by modern science, particularly by cognitive behavioral therapy and research in, the, in that area. Uh, these are actually standard techniques. The, the negative visualization uh, is a standard technique in CBT, and so is the journaling. There is evidence that they actually do work if properly done. Uh, you know, if it does, if the neg- negative visualization does freak you out, you're not doing it right, you, and then you should stop and go back to it later, because it's not supposed to be about an emotional response. It's supposed to be about okay, let me examine the situation more or less dispassionately and see what I can do about it and what where, where it could go. So there is actually pretty good evidence. Uh, from modern science. And in fact, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a broad family now of psychotherapy that is you know, very popular and studied in the late 50s, early 60s, it originally started out precisely because the founders, they actually didn't know and appreciate the stoic literature. They, they have read Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus, and they uh, had distilled a number of techniques that then became the, the kernel from which modern uh, CBT actually evolved. I'd like to just segue into specifically talking about the coronavirus crisis. So, so could we end off by looking specifically at the situation we're in right now through the lens of the Stoic curriculum as taught uh, in ancient schools? And as you suggest, Massimo, in one of your articles through 
physics, logic, and ethics. And so let's start with physics. How do we apply this idea to the situation we're in now, Massimo? So the, the Stoic ancient curriculum was based, as you say, on those three disciplines. Uh, the, the thing, however, to um, before we go ahead to, to remind um, uh, listeners is that those words again had a different meaning at the time. Physics doesn't mean didn't mean just the study of you know particles and electrons and stuff like that. It literally means the entirety of the natural sciences. The, you know the, the current pandemic seems to be a perfect example of how valuable that advice is, right? So the first thing you want to do is to get the, your facts straight. You want to uh, get informed of what in fact is happening, filter out all this pseudoscience and fake news and all that sort of stuff, get the basic facts from reliable sources, get a minimum understanding. You don't have to get a PhD in biology, a minimum understanding of what exactly is going on in both in terms of sort of broadly speaking, you know, what is a pandemic, how does it work? But also, more importantly, in terms of specifics, how does this particular virus get around and what are what are the kinds of te uh, techniques that you can use to minimize exposure, that sort of stuff. Then you move to the logic and you say, OK, well, now that I have the facts, how do I think about these things? So should I panic? No, of course you shouldn't panic because panic is a overriding of, of, of reason. There is no, no reason to panic. It's not helpful to panic. What you should do instead is to pay attention to what authorities are saying, to talk to your friends, to keep in touch with your family and friends, because you know this one of the major challenges here is going to be, especially in the long run, to keep some kind of society going and some kind of contact with other people going. So that's what reasoning about the facts is telling you. And then the ethics tells you how to behave toward other people. You have a responsibility, according to the Stoics, toward other people. Therefore, for instance, if you're sick, don't get out. Even if you're healthy, get out as little as possible. Maintain social distancing. Do the kind of things that are respectful of other people. Should you get sick, don't get upset, and especially don't get upset with other people, especially the people that are helping you. According to the Stoics, we have a duty toward other people to treat other people well, especially under dire circumstances. Because as Seneca puts it, everybody's a good pilot, a good navigator when the sea is calm. It's when the, the storm comes, that then we're going to see what, what kind of stuff we're, be, we're made of. Well, I want to ask Bridget, of course, to just go through some of this. Specifically, if we could linger on logic, how do you use logic in the stoic sense, as Massimo explained, to help us through, for example, self-isolation and quarantine in your estimate? I was reading this study recently, which um, said this huge percentage of people would rather be given electric shock than to spend any time with themselves alone in a room. So this was pre-pandemic. Pre so people aren't great at spending time by themselves. You know, everyone loves socializing, going out, seeing friends. This is going to force a lot of us to be alone with our thoughts in a room, in one place, with a small amount of people. And the Stoics, you know, a lot of them were exiled. Seneca was exiled and he was exiled for eight years on an island off Corsica. And he used that time to contemplate nature and to contemplate his philosophy, and he used it wisely. So it's about not wasting this opportunity that we have to go inward, to read, to bake, to, to do things that slow us down. We can't change the fact that we've been ordered into isolation, you know, that we don't have control over that. We just have to, to suck it up. But we can use the time, and contemplation is one of the stoic tools, journaling as well. The Stoics, you know, did experience these long periods away from their loved ones and away from their jobs. They lost all their money when they were exiled. They didn't have their social standing. And that's going to happen to a lot of us now. 
So it's how we use that time when we're in our own exiles in home that is important. The final thing that I'd like to do is to read you my favorite bit of advice from my favorite uh, Stoic, Seneca, who wrote this in an essay called On the Shortness of Life. Putting things off is the biggest waste of life. It snatches away each day as it comes and denies us the present by promising the future. The greatest obstacle to living is expectancy, which hangs upon tomorrow and loses today. You are arranging what lies in fortune's control and abandoning what lies in yours. What are you looking at? To what goal are you straining? The whole future lies in uncertainty. Live immediately. Now, the message from that is very clear, but how do we apply that quotation or the lessons from that quotation to the situation that we're living in today? Can you even do that? So the, the message, as you, you actually were saying earlier, is, is essentially the carpe diem, right? It's, it's focus on what is happening here and now. And that the reason for that is because your life is happening here and now. It may very well be the case that right now you're not facing a situation that is particularly pleasant, right? You know, we're, you're in isolation because of the pandemic, or maybe you have some of your uh, loved ones who have, have gotten sick or something like that. Nevertheless, the best thing you can do in terms of preparing for your future, or being helpful to your own future and the future of other people, is in fact to pay attention to what's happening now. It doesn't matter whether it is particularly pleasant or particularly unpleasant. It is what you have, and the reasonable thing to do is to, to uh, pay attention to it so that you can make it better for yourself and for others. Bridget? The most important thing now is not to freak out, you know, not to, not to get angry at people, not to be reactive, not to create you know, vast amounts of anxiety about what might happen in the future. We don't know what's going to happen, you know. This situation changes minute by minute. So being in the present means, am I well? Are the people I love well? Do I have enough to eat? Am I feeling tranquil? Like that was the main, one of the main things that Stoics thought was this tranquility, you know, not being overly disturbed. For me right now, I'm just focusing on being calm, not panicking, showing good character, trying to be a role model for my friends and family who may be struggling and need leadership or need support and enjoying like at the moment it's a beautiful autumn day here in um, central Victoria in Australia and just enjoying the weather and the, the, the good things that are still all around us. So as I mentioned earlier the, the most comforting thing I heard in, in those clips is uh, you know for, especially for anyone coming newly to these concepts is that even the expert talks about having been horrified by negative right. visualization at first. <laughs> and and so if you're having those feelings, again, you're in good company, <laughs> but I would encourage you to try to push through that. Yeah, a it's a bit, bit of a shock to the system. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and then the second most comforted thing is that these things really are backed up by science. We certainly wouldn't have been talking about this if it was like, an ancient philosophy that we just decided is probably good, like right. modern science really does uh, back up these psychological tools that Stoicism sort of uh, pioneered. And uh, what I really should have mentioned at the, at the very top, um, when I first learned about it, one of the first things I learned is that it's completely compatible with any pre-existing, I mean, I guess practically any pre-existing religious beliefs anyone may have. Or may not have. Yeah. Like or, or, that too. <laughs> exactly. 
that it, it doesn't come with any prerequisites of things you need to believe yeah. that may infringe on your pre-existing religion or lack thereof. Um, these are very just psychologically based understanding how we think, why we think the way we do, how we can get ourselves to think differently, and how that can help us feel better, lead better lives, and all of that. It really doesn't infringe on any other structural belief system. Yeah, absolutely. And and I would just say, um, I've been reading a lot about people starting gratitude journals during this time. And I would say if you're doing that, that probably the easiest entry into this world would be to look at that gratitude journal. Imagine all those things that you're grateful for not being there anymore. And then come back and say, I'm so grateful that they are. And you may have a new new, even, you know, you may be even more grateful for those things. I think those two can work hand in hand. No, of, of course. No, that that's, that's exactly how it's supposed to work. There's, I, I actually, you know, a few years ago when I, so around the same time I was coming across this philosophy, I read a, a whole, like a variety of books about happiness and, and all of these kinds of related topics. And one of the books, its whole premise was, Everything we know about being happy is wrong and backwards. And the whole era of the power of positive thinking mm -hmm. has driven people into <laughs> depression. Yeah. Be because like <sighs> just hanging on tightly to, no, I'm yeah. going to, I'm going to think positively. I'm going to think positively. Yeah, like close your eyes, block out anything bad in the world. Yeah. It, yeah. it is destined to failure yeah, and mostly disaster. because bad things happen in the world. It's, exactly. It's just one of the things that we, we can expect out of life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and so, and so, yeah, the whole premise of that book was exactly in line with stoicism talking about like, no, 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 the way to be happy is to occasionally contemplate things being bad. Mm -hmm. And then be snapped back into whatever your reality is. Um, and, and so, and then just like to kind of add on to the general concepts we heard in those clips, um, it certainly happened in our life. I mean, we've been connecting with family. Oh yeah, absolutely. I've, I've been talking to my family way more than I have been. And it actually made me feel a little guilty for a while. I was like, why haven't I been doing this as much before? Um, because but we take life for granted. We, exactly. The, it's because I wasn't practicing enough stoicism. Because we, <laughs> we, we fall into our ruts <laughs> uh -huh. and we get distracted. And, and life is busy, right? Everyone's distracted, exhausted, etc. Um, yeah, so so I definitely have been talking to my parents more. I've been talking. To, so I, I have um, one grandparent left. He's in a nursing home. And um, he has family nearby, but they're in lockdown. Because that's how this is going to protect the people that live there. And... Um, that's been really difficult. And um, luckily he has, you know, most of his faculties so he can kind of understand what's going on. But there are a lot of people there who, who don't know what's happening and, you know, don't understand why no one's visiting. And so I am in that stoic mindset, grateful that he does know what's happening and he is aware. So he doesn't think that his family's ignoring him. Um, yeah, that, that's something I've definitely been thinking a lot about lately. Yeah. And, and on the other end of the age spectrum we've been connecting with the kids in our lives yeah which, which is really fun <laughs> co coincidentally my nephew and your niece their birthdays are about two days apart yeah, yeah. and so we've attended two virtual birthdays kids from birthday parties thousands yeah. of miles away <laughs> and as soon as i got the invite to my nephew's virtual you know zoom hangout birthday party my first thought was 
Yep. But he's 13. Why haven't we ever done this before? Yeah. And they live in France. So like this, yeah, this should have been a thing before. But <laughs> before coronavirus. So, so we can be grateful that coronavirus has reminded people about the importance of this so yeah. that they make the extra effort so that we can sort of take part in those little events yeah, that and, we would have otherwise missed. And right now, like kids, kids can't have their birthday parties, right? So it is nice to do something where they can see people that love them and they can interact and... Um, and feel special because I think, I think that's nice little, little joy and kind of the monotony. I know there's a lot of parents out there working really hard to keep their kids occupied and entertained, but yeah, you gotta, yeah, have that personal connection. Kids want it too, not just the adults. Speaking of the two ends of the age spectrum, one of the first sort of feel good coronavirus stories you told me about was, uh, the viral story about the, the husband whose wife is, in an assisted living home, and he came to her window oh, with a man. sign that said something to the effect of, you know, I've loved you for 60 years and nothing will stop yep. that. But he couldn't go in and visit. Oh, then there was the one that came to his wife's window and they sang together. I mean, oh, man, if you are looking to have a good cry, um, they're out there. There's John Krasinski is doing the, um, some good news YouTube videos, and it's basically just a collection of everything that will make you cry right now. Yeah. <laughs> And, but, but as I said, the, the two ends of the spectrum, because it turns out your uh, six-year-old niece has a boyfriend who did the same thing. She does. It turns oh, my out. God. I can't believe she has a boyfriend. Yep. Yeah, so yep. Six, six-year-old little boy came and like... Left a present outside their gate and waved through the window of his mom's car. <laughs> it was really cute. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so so that's it for us for today. For members, we're actually going to be continuing this conversation because when I was refreshing myself on Stoicism, I stumbled on the libertarian or a libertarian perspective on Stoicism, and yeah, I was they're like, they're not consistent, so it is a perspective. Yeah, I was like, oh boy, I like you know rubbing my hands together. I got to dive into that because because uh, that's going to be interesting. So I, I read up on some libertarian thinking on Stoicism. It was ridiculous uh, and, and sort of amazing. So I am going to be subjecting Amanda to a lot of what <laughs> I learned and, and we'll be having that and discussion. Our members. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> and I'll be we'll be subjecting the members to some libertarian philosophy. So sign up now. Yeah, right. Oh. Uh, get in on that while you still can. Of course, the address, should you want to sign up, is patreon.com slash bestofloved. As always, you can get in touch with us directly. Uh, I can be reached j at bestofleft.com. And I'm Amanda at bestofleft.com. And you can always leave voicemails at 202-999-3991. Thanks for listening. Wash your hands. Stay awesome.